AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hey Stan, I heard you have a story about a new rat. Yes, it's the either the Jehoni rat or the Joan rat. Um, unfortunately, there's no standard guy for pronouncing malware names. Uh, but it's a new malware uh, that's being distributed in the Middle East or targeting victims in the Middle East. Um, and the Talos Intelligence blog actually did a really nice analysis and broke it down. Um, as you know, guys, I really love analyzing malware and figuring out what it's all about. So I thought there were a couple of interesting things uh, in this analysis that I want to kind of share with you. Number one is how the distribution works. So the distribution is via uh, document files, which is actually not that strange. Uh, a lot of malware gets distributed uh, with document files, um, TrickBot and other kind of crimeware type things, as well as APT. As usual, macros are the thing that kind of does the dropping component. And the team here at Talos, they actually were able to find three different uh, variants of this distribution mechanism or this lure document. And one of them that I thought was interesting is actually a picture of the content you're about to see, but it's blurred out. And it tells you, hey, if you want to see the content, uh, please go ahead and enable editing mode. And I think that's like a really clever way to get probably most people because you're kind of like right. squinting at it. Right, There's right. something there you're not sure. And here's your final solution. All you got to do is click this button, and you could see the rest of this content. They had other interesting lures, like um, supposedly this is something that has, like, let's say, Facebook compromised Facebook credentials or something like that. So you know, check if you're in there. So you want to check area, if exactly, you know, whatever. And so it's like really engaging lures that I think most people would probably fall for. And then I think what's unique about this is once the malware is kind of going through its installation steps, there's lots of um, uh, obviously like wrapping in different components so you know you macro turns into like an auto IT script turns into uh, like a binary that's like a Python packed basically a Python script but it's uh, compiled with like Python installer mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, I mean it's not uh, out of the realm of possibility for malware to be written in Python but it's definitely not something that we've talked a lot about in the past uh, it's something that is probably not talked about uh, uh, really that often. The most interesting thing is a lot of these components are hosted, or the micro components, are hosted in different like cloud services providers. So uh, there's, um, let's say you're trying to download an additional piece of the binary, it might be disguised as an image and posted to like an image sharing site. Um, and a lot of the communications as well happens over popular services. So the adversary doesn't actually have to ever host any infrastructure. It's actually living off the land of um, you know, free services that are out there that you could subscribe to um, that um, just exist. So it's really a low cost for them in that sense. You know, one of the things about that malware is that, you know, it's using a lot of these tools that are free, like Google Drive and Google Forms. You know, if you're just trying to look for the traffic going out, it might be difficult, right? So it's really dependent on the, the end user, you know, that may be receiving um, these lore documents to really resist clicking on things that, you know, you're not sure of the source, where it came from, you weren't expecting it, you know, just, you know, whatever temptation you have to click on these links, uh, try to avoid it as, as, you know, at all costs. So I think it's a pretty clever piece of malware, uh, and I already mentioned that it's written in Python. 
The Talos team did mention that they didn't think it was from any open source, so they think that you know an adversary like sat down and wrote this themselves without using previous examples. Um, it uses for C2 Twitter, and when it connects to Twitter, it's following a specific handle. Actually, uh, I guess Jones is the first part of the handle, which is, I guess, how this malware got its yeah. name. Right. Uh, and it can do three commands, depending what's in the different tweets uh, that are posted by this account. And I'm guessing that you know it could be different types of accounts uh, posting it. Um, so the first is it can take a screenshot of your screen and upload that image to uh, ImageBB, which is like uh, basically an image sharing site. Or it can download a binary uh, from uh, that's a really a picture. So it's got like this interesting. It's like it's pretends to be a picture. If you look at it, it looks like a real picture. But at the end of it, it's got this malware component that you gotta deobfuscate and figure out. The malware knows how to do it. So a little bit of a stealthy technique, I would say, trying to hide in the noise, so to speak. Um, and then it, this picture could be like on Google Drive. So it'll download it and execute it. Um, and then uh, it can also uh, execute commands and set the output of those commands to Google Forms. So you could see like every piece of it can get work with kind of a different part of the uh, universe out there on the internet of freely available things. So Twitter, uh, Google Drive, Google Forms, this ImageBB thing. So things that people have available and they're really legitimate applications that right. are used. They might be a little bit difficult to detect in the network. Um, so this person kind of takes that, uses it to their advantage. Right. Um, there's also a few interesting things about how the malware is packed, how it does um, evasion techniques, and I definitely uh, encourage everyone who's interested in it uh, to go ahead and read this Talos blog. Um, it's got really interesting detail. If you're interested in malware analysis at all, I think this piece of malware or how it's distributed, how it's packaged, uh, is uh, uh, kind of hitting most of the new techniques that are out there for malware. Right. Uh, so if you're really excited about that, please go ahead and check it out. It's a great write-up. Now, one other thing I forgot is how did they figure out the victims are in the Middle East? Um, it's because the malware actually checks when it's running, hey, what system am I installed on? Checks your keyboard and says, hey, is this keyboard like an English keyboard or one in several different countries that this adversary is interested in? And depending on the country, uh, it'll launch or it won't launch. So very so interesting piece of malware. Specifically targets, I guess, keyboards with uh, a Middle Eastern country layout. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. If they're using Twitter or even Google Drive, they can probably pivot to something else. If Twitter blocks them, they can use Instagram, I'm sure. Right. Or if, you know, Google Drive's not working out for them, they could switch to Dropbox or, right. you know, any other 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 free uh, services that offer same, the same uh, capabilities. The good thing, I think, is that, you know, so a lot of these companies, I think, are very credible companies, and they have very good right. security posture and threat intel teams, so hopefully uh, they're kind of keeping up uh, an eye on this, and clearly they are because, you know, obviously this Twitter handle was uh, canceled right away, so right. hopefully more people aren't a victim of this. But it's definitely something important to keep an eye on, and of course, as we think about designing, like, the security strategy, uh, how to protect ourselves from malware, we have to be cognizant that there are you know, there's business needs to use Google Drive right. or Google Forms or these image right. hosting sites or even Twitter. There's so many different business cases. Right. So you can't just like really block that stuff. But how, exactly. So malware could have an opportunity to hide there, but how do you uh, 
well, what are some of the clever techniques you can use to protect yourself there? You think about how many things are being passed by macros. You, you almost wish that there was a, a, a ubiquitous way just to turn off macros, you know, and, you know, and require enabling, you know, each time or something, something that trigger that. Yes. And I, I can see these adversaries have gotten really smart with the lures. I got, honestly, for me, for some reason, this blurring effect is like the best way. Because if you ever see something blurry, yeah. automatically your Just mind is like, blur. how do I get in there? How do I zoom in? Or what's going on? Why is it loading slow? <laughs> you guys remember those days when like the images used to load really slow? On <laughs> line <dialogue>? by line. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's because of that. We're like old. Like, oh, come on, get it faster. Let me click on this button. How can I get this content faster? And, I, you know, uh, the adversaries have definitely, I feel like, gotten better to get you to click on things. So I wonder if there are some good approaches to um, maybe when documents come through, like just strip out all the macros uh, or something like that. Like maybe there is approaches like that that could be put into place or created um, like in, to protect an enterprise or your... But you, you, know, you know that to get around that, you just encrypt a document or you put it behind a password or something and you can't open it anyway. <laughs> exactly. And then of course, I'm sure you can come up with like very creative ways to you know, say, hey, you got to open this up right away. Here's right. the password. Right. Go for it. And actually, unfortunately, I think there's a little bit more trust when somebody gives you a password. Somehow, by sharing a secret with you, you establish some sort of a connection right away. Right. Uh, hey, I'm some telling you this. Don't tell anyone. On the internet, right? <laughs> Even if it's a random person on the internet. Your best defense is really your skepticism. Be on the lookout for strange emails. If you see a blurry image and it says you got to do something special to see the image better, Maybe somebody's trying to trick you. Hey, John, it's good to see you again. Uh, what story do you have for us today? I have an interesting uh, development that's happened in two-factor authentication. Uh, you know, we all know that, you know, two-factor is real important. You know, you want to have something you know, something you have. One of the challenges is always, you know, to get to the have part, do you use a lightning key, you know, lightning you know, key, do you use USB-C, what do you use? Um, to enable that. And, you know, a lot of the two-factor solutions we see nowadays are like sending SMS text to somebody, which isn't very secure and I think arguably not two-factor. Um, so what we have is, is Google and Apple have worked together to enhance the, um, the Smart Lock app to run on your, on your iPhone or Apple device, I should say. And what that does is, is if you, for example, connect to your Google Mail or some of your Google services, if you're within Bluetooth range of your, like your PC, for example, you can then coordinate with your, your phone, pull up the app, that smart lock app on your phone, on your Apple phone, and actually use a two-factor that is on the device. So this, is, this would be something that is, you have, you have to unlock the device, and you have to be within Bluetooth range of the computer wishing to put that authentication key. So it's, it's a whole big, I think, a leap forward in that uh, something you have part of a two-factor authentication. The question then is, is how secure is the, the information on the phone? Well, Google is actually, you know, like so they worked with Apple pretty closely on this, is to store that cryptographic key in what's called the secure enclave which is a part of your Apple operating system and devices that is very tightly controlled, locked behind, you know, every known protection that Apple can give. And we know Apple is very good on privacy. And 
that is the same place that they store all those other keys that they use for, you know, your normal Apple business on the phone. So this is a very strong key that can be used for, like I said, only for now for Google services. But I think down the road, this type of, uh, you know, where you have your phone handy is going to be used for a lot more things and not have to carry a fob or something else around. Yeah, that's very exciting to hear. It's almost like a three-factor authentication almost. It's like something you have, something you know, and somewhere you are. You have to do it. You have to unlock that device. You have to do something. <laughs> exactly. I think that's a very clever technique. You know, one of the things actually during lunch, we were talking about this very same topic. And one of the things we were talking about is uh, like, what are the backup mechanisms? So let's say you really need to like log in to your account, and, but you've like misplaced your phone or you don't have this thing, you're not next to your computer, but you gotta log in or, you know, how, you know, usually there's some sort of a backup mechanism. And it seems like some of the security issues sometimes, no matter how secure you make the original thing, the backup mechanism sometimes has like, it's not a back door, but it's a little bit weaker. It's not as strong. Did, did they pass. talk a little bit about that here? And Yeah, they do. And you think about the SMS, and like you see, you see all the, the things that say, oh, yeah, I'll send you a text with your new password, which is really bad. But let's say they send you a text with a key, a pin. Well, you think, okay, i got to unlock my phone anyway to see that pin. Well, the problem is, is that most people have notifications turned on on their phone, so that actually just pops up even on a locked phone. So now you don't have to unlock the device to see that key. So as long as you can get into and say, reset my password or reset something, or like you said, get a backup, it's there in front of you. Yeah. With this new mechanism, did they talk at all about like how they might approach the this backup solution uh, where, you know, you don't have your device next right. to your computer? Uh, did they cover that at all? Or? Well, that's, that's the whole point is you have to have something you trust, which is your device. So you, you'd have to, you have to be within Bluetooth range. So it's kind of like, it's, it's the same philosophy as, as I have my key. You know, if you you know you think about the you know people putting in cards or or you know inserting a, a USB key, it's the same type of mechanism and solution. You have to physically have it on you. Unfortunately, if you lose it, then you you are in trouble. <laughs> well, I guess that's the securest you could get. <laughs> you know, and sometimes you almost have to take risks like that, depending on the information that you want to protect, and right. you do want to make sure you don't lose your device or something like that. So I'm, I'm assuming this same app is available on, in the Android store for like Android devices, right? It is. It's, it's a little. It works a little differently on the Android side. I, to be honest, you know, I haven't tried to compare like is one more secure than the other. You know, I, I don't necessarily know if that's uh, you know apples to apples in, in that case, but it might be um, you know a question to think about. Yeah, I think what I, I think my concern would be what if someone is able to get a fake version of that app on the Play Store or in the Apple, uh, you know, on the Apple Store, and then you know you you end up downloading this fake app thinking you're doing two-factor. Actually, you're you're really giving everything away. We're thinking about the phishing attacks already. Right. I guess here we are, like right. security researchers. Right. We can't help but to be cynical <laughs> about every single approach there is. But that's that's kind of our job, isn't it? Right. Yeah, well, and, and, and the good thing, again, is at least from the Apple perspective, it's stored in secure enclaves, so very few things have access to the secure enclave. I mean, very few. And it's, it's pretty well tied tightly to the, to the OS. 
So, you know, it's kind of like to think about, you know, for those of us who might use a soft token for like an RSA secure ID, you can't just pick that up and take it to another device. It's one of the, you know, it's always physically tied to that hardware. So I think that it's going to reduce the opportunities for spoofing or for cloning of those keys. But, you know, nothing's going to solve the user factor. You know, there's there's going to be a person do something that's going to get around it, right? Right. Yeah, that's 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 always the problem, right? Yeah, I'm looking forward to more companies adopting technologies right. like this, so that you know it's not just what you know, who you are. It's also maybe where you are, right? Uh, or that you're within the proper vicinity or in the right location. Yeah. And I'm sure as we go forward, we'll probably think as an industry of even more factors. One expand is the geofencing. You know, could you add that to the to the mix there? That says, okay, you not only have to be within Bluetooth range, but you can't just do it from, you know, from an airport, you know, you have to be in this building, you know, if, if you're really tightly secured. For something like this to get really widely adopted is, you know, it's got to be fairly seamless for the end, for the typical end user, you know, easy to use, straightforward, but also packing all the security features without them really knowing it, I guess, right? You know, a lot of people relying on SMS uh, text messages for the second factor, but it actually is not the best way to do a second factor. It's not, uh, I would say, cryptographically secure, uh, which cryptographically secure is kind of the standard for actually being secure in a, an authentication mechanism. Yeah, hi, Manish. Uh, I'm just wondering if uh, there's been a lot of uh, discussion lately about the impacts of the disclosure of the crypto API uh, vulnerability that just recently. Yeah, uh, so a lot of the reporting, uh, you know, it's uh, Crypto API CVE uh, 2020-0601. So a lot of that reporting has been about spoofing the certificates for TLS connections at different websites. But what's also uh, an option for one of the bad guys is you can spoof the code signing certificate as uh, like a legitimate uh, organization uh, to escalate privileges, right? So what happens is on an unpatched machine, you, you know, you open an application and then you, you know, you might get the little pop-up uh, from that user account control. You know, it's like a blue banner if it's like a trusted certificate from a, you know, t trusted publisher and you, I guess blue means it's all okay. But if it's an untrusted publisher or an unknown publisher, you, it's a yellow banner. Um, but I guess what, uh, one of the things that you could do because of this vulnerability is that, you know, you can spoof it and you can put in Microsoft the same details of a, of a, a legitimate Microsoft uh, certificate or any other large, you know, uh, trusted publisher and spoof that. And then, you know, when you get that little pop-up, it'll be blue. And if you're conditioned to just go hit OK when you see the blue pop-up, you know, then, you know, I guess any sort of malware uh, can take advantage of that. You know, because it's a certificate, you can't, you know, and if you're using a certificate from a, a you know, a trusted publisher like Microsoft, you can't just go and, you know, untrust all of them, right? Because there are legitimate applications that use it. So uh, it's a little difficult without actually, uh, uh, you know, patching your system, you know, and, I, and it, I think the exploit, because it is a certificate, you can't really do much on unpatched systems. And I think that's one of the issues here. But the good thing is that, uh, you know, a lot of the, I think Google, um, they, in their latest version, they have, you know, they're, they're able to detect whether it's one of those spoof certificates, so they'll block, you know, block it. And, you know, that's more of the TLS connection things. But, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, 
there's some more awareness and some more protections in place that detect actually the code signing, uh, spoof code signing certificate. And I think that's kind of probably what's next though, you know, as this vulnerability continues on, you know, I think a lot of the malware writers will start signing it with these uh, spoof uh, certificates. If you're, you know, a small company or if you're just an individual and you get one of these, uh, uh, you know, you get a malware, an email via email or whatever, you know, you're probably not going to be uh, aware enough to, to realize that this Microsoft certificate could be a spoof certificate and you wouldn't, you know, how would you know? Um, so it's kind of uh, somewhat dangerous, probably um, maybe even more dangerous than like exploiting the TLS uh, connections via spoof certificates, right? Because there are protections in place, right? Through like the Chrome browser, AV, and things like that might be able to detect some of these things, but you know, I guess it's a mixed bag somewhat. Yeah, this is definitely an advanced vulnerability, I would say. Right. And it's scary to think that you might be the recipient of one of these because uh, basically, like you said, uh, you, know, you might rely on the strategy of like whitelisting things or only executing right. code that's signed. And if the checking system, the system that checks if the code is signed properly is broken, uh, then you're going to make bad decisions. Or a lot of people probably even use some sort of automation here right, to help right. make sure can you run this or not, or maybe there's some sort of a policy. Um, and it unfortunately would allow something like this uh, to execute. But at the same time, you know, as, as bad as this is, I'm actually quite happy that we're not like 10 to 15 years ago where there was not like good patching practices um, and uh, you know vulnerabilities were released, and sometimes it would take a really long time to release patches. But now, um, you know, from a moment a, a critical vulnerability is issued, um, it, sometimes the vendor is already has the patch because right. they might have been working with a security researcher right. already, or the vendor might already like vendors like Microsoft might have already observed something strange going on in the wild, which I know they they probably do stuff like that. And they look for like, hey, why is this code breaking? Uh, why is this not working correctly? And they're looking to patch that as just part of their normal right. existence as a software company. So it's encouraging, even though you know this vulnerability is terrible, and everyone should patch it as fast as possible. I'm I'm kind of encouraged uh, that we are uh, um, able to execute quickly on these patches, and you know this. Things are available. That's the key, though, right? It's it's, it's patch. <laughs> I mean, we have a patch for this. You know, they it, people don't think about patching, and they should, <laughs> and and they need to be aggressive. You know, or especially in in, in a corporation or a, 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 you know, a you know a business needs to put these patches on fast. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and again, this is such a like an interesting. If you look at the details of this how you go get around all of this. It's like really intricate right. and very interesting. And obviously someone took a lot of care to make sure it works uh, well uh, to exploit uh, the things. And it's quite scary for sure. But again, with the patching, like John said, sure. um, there's a way to overcome that. And I think, honestly, I think like most corporations who are smart in the space now or most companies or enterprises are probably do have mature vulnerability management right. programs now that this is just part of, hey, there's another vulnerability, and it's right. very critical, and we must get it out now. So I think by now, hopefully, most companies, especially large ones, have, have, you know, have a program that's mature right. 
and able to uh, take this in as fast as it comes out. Um, I, I'm actually, um, as bad as this one is, I'm very encouraged where the space has sure. been with cybersecurity, sure, yeah. what we've come as an industry. Right, and with all the, you know, I guess over the last, I want to say decade of pushing the layered defenses, you know, all of that with patching, I think that's also uh, yes. something that's helpful. Yep, exactly. And everyone takes it, I think, seriously, and again, the vendors take it seriously, I think, right. but again, like 15, 20 years ago, it would have been an uphill battle to even get the vendor to say, hey, you know what, there's a problem here. But now I think everybody is kind of like with, with the program, so to speak. Right. We're all on board. Right. I still remember, I think it was SQL Slammer or something like that. I remember, you know, the patch was out and then like six minutes or six months later, we actually saw the exploit and I'm thinking, you know, if we just patched it six months ago, I think, I mean, people wouldn't have had this problem. Yeah, and I think WannaCry even... As I think was it 2018, 2017, WannaCry like reinforced that for us right. and kind of re-reminded us, hey, you gotta do patches because if you don't, you know, this is the problem. But I think again, uh, for the most part, I think most people have gotten the message now who who are responsible for protecting systems, major systems. Sure. This whole method was created for making sure that an application is exactly what it purports to be. It's signed by Microsoft, that means if you trust Microsoft, you can execute this, um, and maybe there's no side effects. Unfortunately, the mechanism for uh, verifying that the signature is correct uh, can be overcome. Hey Manish, how are you? I have uh, the internet weather today. Uh, so we'll start with the top 10 most probe reports. As you know, the top 10 most probe reports is how we measure um, scanning activity on the internet, kind of lets us know uh, what's happening in terms of uh, you know, adversaries looking for exploits or vulnerabilities or looking to exploit things or maybe the rise of botnets or compromised devices. And it's uh, looking at just scanning activity by itself can be a good bellwether to understand uh, sometimes what's on the minds of different adversaries. Um, so this week we have um, the regular uh, top 10 most pro ports report. Uh, which just basically indicates which ports were of most interest or scanned by volume most frequently per hour um, compared to the same time last week. So one of the things that seems to have uh, crept up uh, almost 11 places is uh, uh, port 443 TCP. Now as you can imagine, port 443 TCP, which is commonly associated with HTTPS or SSL protected websites, um, is commonly scanned, scanned quite a bit. But for it to jump into this position, from position 12 to position 1 this week, it really indicates that there was a lot more scanning. All of a sudden, there were more flows or more bytes, uh, just more going on on this port. Um, so obviously, it caught my attention, and I wanted to dig into it a little bit further. So I'll share uh, with you and our viewers uh, what uh, was the cause of the spike and why it appears here. And then finally, um, you know, all of these ports we've been looking at um, quite frequently, you know, 23, Telnet, 445, SMB, uh, different SQL vulnerabilities, different IoT devices, things that are commonly associated with remote management of um, uh, platform systems, computers. Um, but I want to cover SMB, port 445 TCP, because it's commonly associated with the WannaCry vulnerability. And just I, what I, one of the things I've been doing when I do the internet weather is I uh, kind of track if, uh, the WannaCry activity is kind of going up or down, um, and see in general um, as, a, as the internet, or are we doing better or not? So, 
let's start with the activity on port 443 TCP. Now here, I took a look at the last 365 days just to understand like what usually happens on this port. And this is scan, all scan activity on this port. Uh, it's just volume, how, how much happens. So you could see a lot of the times it's not really that exciting. Uh, but there are certainly times when there's a little bit of, let's say, excitement out there. Like somebody does a lot more than usual. And it could be anyone. It could be security researchers. Uh, there's like a lot of internet like census firms out there that try to understand what's running on which port. Um, and you could see sometimes there could be billions uh, of uh, scan flow records uh, per hour uh, that impact this port. Uh, but what we're looking at is actually the last 30 days probably, just to understand the specific spike. But I just want to show you in perspective, you know, it's probably not the biggest spike we've ever observed on this port. Uh, so just looking at the last, I guess, 15 days, I wanted to do two things. Number one, I wanted to understand uh, what the most recent spike happened and what it was caused by. And I, I did that in two ways. So the first is how much scanning activity was there. And the second way is who did the scanning? How many IP addresses did the scanning? So the scale here is you know, up to 3.5 thousand IP addresses all at the same time doing scanning, which could represent a botnet or a collaborative effort of some sort to do scanning um, together. Um, and then this here represents just the volume, how much happened um, in general. So you could see there's definitely, it's not consistent, I would say, uh, but there's definitely times when the amount of scanning and the number of scanners go up together, but not all the time. Um, so it's just an interesting situation. So what did I do? I actually take the list of scanners um, in the last few hours, uh, or actually during that spike, and I wanted to see uh, where in the world is it coming from. Looking at it geographically can sometimes help us to understand if it's like um, maybe a botnet that's spreading worldwide, or if it's maybe a specific ISP that has maybe a lot of compromised devices or something like that. And you could see there's actually an interesting concentration, because this is normal concentration for us to see. But something that's a little bit abnormal about this concentration is there's a little too much going on, I would say, in the Middle East. Um, so when I looked at the activity a little bit closer and really try to understand um, what's causing the spike, actually a lot more of the activity causing the spike on this port uh, was caused by the IP addresses emanating out of the Middle East here. Um, so uh, when I looked at it even closer, I identified there's about three different networks or specific ISP. So like a few thousand IP addresses in that network or in those three networks that are doing it. And here on the bottom graph, I've mapped out the flow activity uh, for uh, these IP addresses mm. uh, during the same 15-day period. Actually, it's not the, those IP addresses, it's those network blocks. Uh, so you could see here red, green, and blue are just the different um, uh, ISPs all within that same region. Um, and if you look carefully, you'll notice that pretty much all of the activity for the last 15 days for, the, for, that, uh, for those three ISPs from that one region of the world uh, do seem to account for you know, 1.8 basically billion uh, flow records. Uh, that have to do with the scanning activity on port 443. So probably most of it, actually, if not almost all of it, uh, is probably attributable uh, to this. Now, why is this happening? Why is that all of a sudden happening? I think it's a little hard to say exactly why something like that could happen, but 
Uh, you know, there's a variety of reasons. Maybe there's a specific vulnerability that was discovered that tends to be exploited. Maybe some sort of a reconnaissance uh, going on to find vulnerable servers out there. But certainly interesting, um, and given some other uh, things going on in the world now, uh, in specific region of the world, it's uh, just a little bit more interesting from that perspective. So this bottom graph, what it's saying is in the past 15 days, those three ISPs that you identified had no detectable scanning uh, flows except for when this spike occurred? No measurable even right. flows completely. So this actually represents all flow activity outbound from, the, from these gotcha. three ISPs uh, that we're able to observe. So not just scanning, just every flow. Anything that we would have normally seen from them, but predominantly where they really rose to the top here is because of the scanning activity on Pol 443. And if you look at the numbers, they're not one-to-one, -one, but they're almost one-to-one. -one. Right. At this scale, they do look like they're one-to-one. Obviously, this activity on 443 is caused by others as well, uh, but I think you could see in, a big, in the big way, uh, it was really caused by this, uh, uh, these three ISPs. That's interesting. Definitely. Uh, so, uh, on to the next interesting thing, which is the activity on port 445. So, I already mentioned to you that every time I'm on ThreatTrack since, I guess, April of uh, last year, I've been trying to understand uh, what's going on with WannaCry. How are we doing? You probably remember, uh, you know, was this 2017, around August timeframe, everybody who was anybody in security was like called in, hey, there's this crazy vulnerability. Even the kinds of vulnerabilities we're now talking about, you know, on threat track today. Like, what is the impact? What does it mean? And, um, and making sure we're patched. And around that time, there was a piece of malware called WannaCry, which was like an, a crypto uh, ransomware uh, type of uh, virus, a worm, really that was spreading using this vulnerability. Right. And if you could zoom in on that time, you would see how fast the activity had dropped that weekend as people thought that they had it all covered. Uh, actually, if you zoom in there, that, low, that level of scanning that day was the lowest probably had been in the prior you know, two or three years. But unfortunately, after that weekend or after that day, um, this didn't get a lot of coverage and things actually got a little bit worse. So within a few weeks, the uh, amount of scanning, uh, meaning the number of malware infections uh, targeting this port or this vulnerability actually grew. So this would represent all of the computers that eventually would become infected with this Trojan. Um, but um, the first day I did it in April, you could see there was like so sort of like a downward trend here um, in the activity. So uh, I've been tracking it. See, like every month, what happens. So sometimes the activity stays the same, sometimes it goes down, sometimes it keeps going down, uh, sometimes it stays the same a little bit more, sometimes it does one of these little up and down dips. Uh, and what I do is I kind of ask all my partners who help me do the internet weather what they think the activity will be like for the last month. So what do you think? Is the activity going to go down, stay the same, or go up? Um, well, it looks like we're Kind of trending up right now, so I feel like it's gonna it's gonna continue to go up uh, probably for the next couple of weeks. Well, this is a tricky one, so it can go. This is one of those uh, overall, right, yes. right, right, right. Uh, <coughs> so this one that did like the the up and down, but ultimately right. I think if we look at it, right, overall average, it's going it down. Goes down, right. So you're right. This month it kind of went up. But overall, I think it's going down, which is normal in the sense of um, the internet, you know, how things mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. So, 
uh, that's pretty much it for the most uh, probed report that we have, which just shows us volumetrically for the ports that we have out there, uh, what's, um, uh, you know, what the volumes are. So now we'll go to the top 10 most sources probing report. And so this helps us to understand, um, say, botnet activity. So these are uh, basically ports that are being scanned by the most devices out there all at the same time. Um, so 445 TCP we actually just talked about, and that makes sense because of that spreading worm, devices that become infected, keep scanning. Port 23 also makes sense because of Mirai. Um, port 80 is just frequently scanned by many people, so it might, may or may not have to do with the botnet. Um, I'm sure some of the scanning activity is botnet, some of it is like trying to figure out what's running on port 80. Right. Um, and maybe the same can be said about some of It might be for, uh, due to the Citrix uh, ADC vulnerability That as well. could still be, yeah, exactly. And it could be just general interest in this port. Uh, but to me, you know, having done this for so long now, none of these ports really resonated. Stick out, right. I wanted to see what happens in the, let's say, top 20. So what happens in the next 10. And for some reason, maybe it's because this port is so interesting, 4567 TCP is really like the port that uh, jumped out at me uh, for something to investigate. Um, so I decided to take a look at it. So here I created a very similar chart. So this is the number of scan flows uh, per hour, and this is the number of IP addresses doing the scanning. Now again, the scale here is in thousands. It's thousands of IP addresses scanning. So it's not like a major botnet or a major threat anywhere. But it's still thousands of devices all at the same time looking for this port. And you could see a while back, there was definitely uh, peaks of interest against this port. And then more recently, uh, it looks like the, the activity hasn't really gone away. Like here, in the last year, I could see like some days there was a lot, then nothing, a lot, nothing, a lot, nothing. But now it seems like this is something that sustained I would say interest. is a sustained interest in this port by a sustained number of IP addresses mm -hmm. all at once. So generally, this is like the precursor to you know, a botnet being discovered or um, us knowing about some sort of a botnet activity out there, uh, a threat for us to investigate. So um, generally, what I do in these situations, I always like to map it out geographically just to understand the distribution. Is this coming from one place or several places? Can we make any assessment about what this might be? And looking at the last four hours of scanning against this port and all the IP addresses that are doing it, you could see there's definitely concentrations in certain parts of the world, but again, not everywhere. So like for example, before we saw Middle East, but here Middle East is not playing as big a role, uh, but Europe is, and then I think this is Brazil, um, I think Southeast Asia over here. So there's definitely um, certain regions of the world that definitely flare up, but again, not everything. You don't see like Russia flaring up or you don't see China flaring up uh, as much. You don't see some of these northern parts of South America flaring up like you might normally do. So it lets you know the distribution of the devices that are participating in this are kind of semi-located to certain regions. The scanning can happen from anywhere, obviously. But there are some um, uh, hotspots, so to speak. Uh, but as to what the activity is, we're still investigating that. You know, it's something that we're um, just starting to look at. Um, but it's something for us to still discover. But there's definitely a potential botnet component sure. here. Yeah. It could be like a Mirai type botnet, possibly impacting an IoT type device. That's uh, popular so maybe in these regions, I exactly. guess, right? Exactly. Um, so something for us to still discover and learn more about. Um, but just wanted to show, share with you. That's um, cool. Yeah. So I was curious when you mentioned the 443 uh, scan volume 
had gone up, and I didn't see on the top ten, uh, you know, the uh, the number of sources scanning, but it is on the top twenty, and I, I think I noticed it rose like seven seven places uh, the for the same time well. period. Yes. So, uh, you know, obviously that's probably attributed to the specific you know, from those three. Yeah, I was just exactly. curious as to what you know these these ports. I mean, I'm sure next week or two we'll probably hear some reports about some device that's vulnerable on four, five, six, seven. But 443, you know, that's kind of, uh, you know, it's interesting what, what all of a sudden the interest in 443. Right. And it's a, it's a port where there's so many different services running. Uh, it could be web services, right. a lot of different frameworks. So it's definitely somebody, I would say, at least trying to enumerate what's out there right. and understand uh, what they have access to. Right. And put so it that way. I, I, I guess it's kind of indicative of it's, it's less of, maybe botnet-related activity scanning versus it's a deliberate attempt to scan 443. I would say, yeah, that's the conclusion I would reach as well because it's, it's, it's a lot of devices suddenly doing it, but not that many that arises to the level of botnet, but the also botnet, right. not distributed at all. Right. They all seem to be from a specific region, which sometimes indicates you know, a localized um, person or an, a localized group uh, that they're interested in that specific thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's just uh, let's see what happens next week, right? And yes. If anything changes on these exactly. uh, two ports. The increase in the scanning activity against port 443 TCP emanating out of a specific region of the world and just being able to see that and know that there is uh, such a significant interest all of a sudden is definitely something that's new uh, that we didn't see in previous weeks. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.